0: Good morning, friends. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, It's a beautiful fall day here in Asheville and we're grateful for that. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him for his help as we're gonna look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We do praise you for your wisdom and your perfect plan of redemption. We come to you this morning as people who are in need of what only Jesus can do for us. And we come to you as people who are in need of your spirit to come and minister to us in this time. So we pray, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit, fill me with your spirit as the preacher of your word. And we pray that your spirit would fall on all who gather here this morning, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what your word says, and that we would have hearts that are receptive to it. We pray that our faith in your son would be sustained and confirmed and strengthened and that faith in your son would even be imparted to some in our midst this morning. So we pray for these supernatural, extraordinary things to happen. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. One of the things that we talk about here quite often at CBC is how the doctrine of our church And by doctrine, I mean the truth claims, the confession of faith, for example, that we would hold, our theology, the understanding of scripture that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We talk about that doctrine driving the culture of our congregation. We all are working by God's grace, by his spirit, to see a culture of love and unity and compassion and transparency and safety built at this church. We are working and praying by God's spirit to see a culture of bearing one another's burdens, appointing one another to Christ as we battle sin and pursue righteousness. We are desiring to see that kind of culture established in this congregation and by God's grace, he is doing that. And we know and confess together regularly that it is the doctrine of our church that drives that culture that we have here at CBC. You see, if a, a church can have a, a great kind of culture amongst its congregation, but if it's created by maybe a charismatic leader, some kind of cult of personality, then that is not a very safe, sustainable, stable thing. But when the culture of a church is driven by its doctrine, when it's driven by its understanding of God's truth, when it's driven by its confession of faith, there is much safety and security and stability in that. Doctrine like the sufficiency and complete adequacy and power of Jesus Christ to save the most wretched of sinners. That kind of doctrine will drive the culture of a congregation. A biblical understanding of the way of salvation, how a person is justified, declared righteous before God, how a person is sanctified and the certainty of that sanctification becoming increasingly holy that God's spirit will accomplish in us, that drives The culture in a congregation. An understanding that our salvation, because of the finished work of Christ, is done. It's over. We will absolutely be glorified and with God forever. That will drive the culture of a congregation. As will a robust and biblical understanding of sin and the fall of man and what that did to us. As will an understanding that we are, those of us who are trusting in Christ, at the same time justified and sinner. We are saint and sinner simultaneously as we walk together in this life on our pilgrimage to the celestial city. When we talk this way, in terms of doctrine driving the life of the church and doctrine driving the culture of the church, we are talking just like the apostles wrote. We continue today in our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We looked at Ephesians one, one through six, a couple of weeks ago in the first sermon in this series. Today, we will resume beginning in Ephesians one and verse seven. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, whether that's a hard copy or on your phone, go ahead and make your way to Ephesians chapter one. Just a few words of overview as we are still new in this series. Paul wrote this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a significant city in the Roman empire in the first century. It was the the capital of the province of Asia, located in modern day Turkey. We know from the book of Acts that the apostle Paul had a very significant and affectionate relationship with this church and spent some time there and seeing it start. For your reading, maybe sometime this afternoon or this week, Read Acts chapter 20 and Paul's farewell words to the elders of the church at Ephesus. It's a very sweet passage. The big theological themes of the letter to the Ephesians are the mystery of Christ in the gospel, meaning the plan of God from before all time to save sinners, Jew and Gentile, and how that has unfolded. That's a big theme in this letter. Another big theme in Ephesians is the grace of God shown to sinners through Christ as is the centrality of the church in the purpose and plan of God. Many familiar with the letter will know that in our modern breakdown with chapter divisions and stuff, there are three chapters on the eternal plan of God to save a people through Christ. It's soaring stuff. It's wonderful truth of what God has done for us, his mercy and his grace and the power of Christ to save, followed by three chapters on how God's people are to live together in the church. Again, doctrine drives the life of the church. Ephesians is a wonderful picture of that reality. So, before we move any further, I want to read God's word for us. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3 all the way down through verse 10 just to give us context. So, let's look now to God's word and listen as I read God's word for us. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. To begin, there are a lot of pronouns in that section of verses, verses seven to 10. And what I want to do is read these verses again, verses seven through 10. And as we go through them, I'll identify just very quickly who I understand the pronouns to refer to so that we can have that understanding together. Meaning do they refer to the father or do they refer to Jesus? So let's look back beginning in verse seven in him. That would be Jesus. We have redemption through his, Jesus's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, the Father's grace, which he, the Father, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his, that being the Father's will, according to his, the Father's purpose, which he, the Father, set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that being Jesus, things in heaven and on earth. So now, having done that, three points for our consideration as we make our way through verses seven to 10. Point number one, we have redemption through the blood of Christ. We have redemption through the blood of Christ. Look at verse seven together. According to Paul, this redemption that we have, he says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. It entails, we see there, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sins. This redemption is something that we have. It is not something that we are striving for. And it entails the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins. In order to understand this well, what it means that we have been forgiven our sins, we must start in one sense at the beginning. Adam as the first human being serves as the representative for all mankind. God made man in his own image. He made Adam uniquely in his image and made Eve from Adam. So Adam, again, as the first human being to live is the representative of all mankind. And when Adam fell, when Adam sinned, we all fell. Since Adam, because of that original sin, every human being is born a sinner. Every human being is born corrupt. We are born into a condition, a state of sin. There is not an aspect of our personhood that has not been affected by sin. We have been in that sense, totally corrupted. Mind, spirit, soul, body any way you want to kind of parcel up the human person, we have been totally affected by sin. Given that we are born into that state, that condition of sin, we are born guilty before God. And then we go on to commit countless sins, which only serve to further confirm our guilt and further confirm our condemnation. It's important. The Bible is very clear. That God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's justice demand that anyone who would ever dwell with God be without sin. God's holiness, righteousness, and justice demand that sin be paid for, that justice be administered. God's holiness, God's righteousness, and justice demand that satisfaction for sin be made. So huge question. How could we ever, as sinful people, born corrupt, who commit countless sins, how could we ever be sinless? Obviously, if we stand on our own, we can't be. How could, another big question, how could our sin ever be paid for, atoned for in the eyes of God? If we stand on our own, The only way our sin could be paid for is for us to face the justice of God. We would pay for that. The penalty for breaking God's law and for being a sinner is our very life. And it is not just in one sense, a death that happens once and it's over. It is an eternal facing of God's justice. Another huge question, how could there ever be satisfaction? Meaning the wrath of God, the good and righteous wrath of God against wickedness. How could there ever be satisfaction made for our sin? If we stand on our own, the only way our sin could ever be satisfied for is for us to bear the wrath of God forever. But, The scriptures don't just give us that testimony. The scriptures tell us that there is one, the perfect mediator between God and man. We confess together about him this morning. The God-man, truly God, truly man, Jesus of Nazareth, who stands as the substitute and the representative for everyone who trusts in him. Those two words are important. Jesus is our substitute and our representative. As our substitute, Jesus took the penalty that we deserve. He, the sinless one, faced God's justice for us. And He, the sinless one, bore God's wrath against our sin in our place. He is our substitute and He is our representative. He accomplished the perfect righteousness, the perfect fulfillment of God's law that we need. Consider the witness of the scriptures. Without thinking too about this, this piece of, we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9, 22. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. First Peter 2, 24. The prophet Isaiah writes of the servant of the Lord. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He takes it, we're healed. Jesus himself in speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter three says to this Pharisee, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's talking about what happened in the book of Numbers chapter 21. The people were grumbling against God in the wilderness. God sends fiery serpents amongst them. They Snakes are biting the people of Israel and they're dying. God tells Moses, "Fashion, make a pole out of bronze and fashion a snake and raise it up on the pole. And when the people look to it, they will be saved. And that happened. Jesus says to Nicodemus, so too must I be raised up, i.e. on the cross so that whoever believes in me might have eternal life. Jesus, on the last night of his earthly life before his crucifixion, in instituting the Lord's supper with his disciples, said of the cup, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the cup of the covenant of my blood, and it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It sounds just like what Paul says here in Ephesians. Paul writes elsewhere in his letter to the Galatians, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He is our substitute and our representative. He became a curse to remove the curse from us. Jesus, with respect to being our representative says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17. Paul tells us again in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Born under the law, born of woman, kept the law to redeem those who were under it. Finally, the apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 521. For our sake, he being God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin in him. We become the righteousness of God. The very righteousness of God is counted to wretches like us. This is the testimony of the scriptures. This is the good news of Jesus Christ and it stands forever unchanged outside of you and me, we looked always outside of ourselves to Christ and his finished work in our place for our hope and our peace before the Lord. We have a perfect substitute and we have a perfect representative and he is able and mighty to save. By faith in this perfect one, we have redemption. In our membership interviews, we had we had a wonderful membership class yesterday. Those classes are always fun. They're interactive. I enjoy the questions that are asked, the discussions that we have. And in thinking about you know membership class, one of the things we tell people in the class is a little bit about our membership process. And we tell them that after they take the class, if they still wanna join CBC, one of the things that they will do is a membership interview with one of the pastors. And one of the things that we do in every membership interview, is we ask people, tell us the good news. Tell us the gospel. How is it that you, a sinner, are reconciled to a holy God? Not really a a more important question that could ever be asked, right? But in asking that question, what we are trying to discern is very simple. We're not looking for just this magnificent, fully-orbed answer, this perfect, flawless answer that would contain all of redemptive history. If you can do that, praise God. But all we are looking for in that question is, is this person trusting in Jesus or something else? Are we trusting in Christ or something else? Because only Christ, is worthy of our trust and only Christ can save. We are standing in him as our substitute and as our representative. We are standing in his life, his death, his merit, his righteousness, his satisfaction. And in him, we have peace with God through the blood that he shed, through the life that he lived and through his triumphant resurrection that vindicated that sacrifice. Though our sins are many, the mercy of Christ is more. And therefore we have hope. Point number two, that was all from verse seven. Point number two is we have redemption because of the grace of the father. So point one, we have redemption through Christ's blood. Point two, we have redemption because of the grace of the father. This point will be a little bit briefer. We will be considering God's grace a lot in the coming weeks. Ephesians two, especially for early verses, is just dripping with fantastic stuff about God's grace. So we will have more opportunities to consider the grace of God together from Ephesians in the coming weeks. Put your eyes back on verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, the father's grace which he lavished upon us. That word is important. The father in no way reluctantly shows grace to his children. He delights in lavishing grace upon us. There is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. We struggle sometimes, even in the church, to understand grace and wrap our minds around grace, our hearts, around what grace is. That's because naturally, we tend to think in terms of a law economy. We tend to think in terms of retribution. We trade with the capital of merit, what we deserve, what others deserve, or perhaps don't deserve. Grace, by definition, friends, is unmerited favor. There's no place for merit in an economy of grace. We get favor, we get blessing that we don't deserve, that we have not earned, that in fact we never could have deserved and never could have earned. Grace, biblically speaking, is in no way conditioned upon anything in us. It is grounded completely in God and who he is. That means that our salvation, our redemption is grounded completely in God. He is the source. Before we were born or had done anything good or evil, God determined that we would be saved when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were following the course of the world, when we were under the dominion of Satan, when we were yet enemies, God made us alive in Christ because of the great love with which he has loved us. By grace, we have been saved through faith. The father has lavished his grace upon us in a significant way that we see that if you put your eyes back on verse eight and nine, a significant way we see the father's grace upon us is that he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Big question then out of Ephesians 8, 9. What is the mystery of the father's will? What is the purpose that he set forth in Christ? Which brings us to point number three. Redemption has always been God's will and purpose. Redemption has always been God's will and purpose and Jesus accomplished it. Put your eyes back on the text. Second half of verse eight and following. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, this is the father doing this, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's consider together, friends, for a few moments, what God has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What better thing to consider? What is it that almighty God the maker of heaven and earth has set forth as a plan for the fullness of time in Christ Jesus. What is that? We would begin to answer that question by flashing all the way back to before the world got started. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been. They never got started. They are. And before the world began, they made a covenant amongst themselves, a plan that a group of people from fallen humanity would be redeemed to be with the Lord forever. That very covenant, that very arrangement, that very plan is what we are thinking about in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, that eternal covenant of redemption. And then we know that that plan and covenant of redemption will unfold in time and space and is recorded for us on the pages of scripture. And then in terms of scene one of the movie, to use that language, we know that God made Adam and Eve in the garden and made a covenant with them. There are these things that you are to do. There is this one thing you are not to do. If you break the covenant, if you violate the covenant, there are sanctions, namely you will surely die. But immediately upon the sin of Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter three, and verse 15, another promise enters the scene. God promises to send a redeemer, one who is the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the snake, the great enemy of God's people, who is the devil. And then from that point forward, through the rest of scripture, this plan, This promise of a covenant of grace, of a redeemer, that unfolds over a number of years, over a number of pages. Many will be familiar with the story of Noah, where God essentially destroys the earth with a flood. He saves one family. He preserves some animals and he says, I'm never going to destroy the earth again. What's the main reason he did that? It's so that the redeemer could come. There's the seed of the woman gonna come. The earth is gonna be preserved so that he can show up. There's a man named Abraham. God makes a covenant with him. He makes promises to him of a people and a land and kings coming from him. And then he makes an eternal promise to him. He preaches the gospel to Abraham, according to the apostle Paul. There is one, a promised offspring of Abraham who would come through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Then comes Moses, a number of years later, the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. Moses is their deliverer. Moses serves as a prophet to deliver God's word and serves as an imperfect but real mediator between God and his people. Through Moses, God gives the law. Through Moses, God gives the sacrificial system. The primary purpose of the law and the sacrificial system is to teach the people that they are sinners that their sin must be atoned for by blood and that there is a perfect sacrifice who's coming, who will do just that, who will not just make them ceremonially clean, but will cleanse them from sin. A man named Joshua comes and is raised up after Moses. Moses, who represents the law, is not able to take the people into the promised land. But Yeshua, Joshua is the one who is able to do that. There is another one named Yeshua who would come to save his people and lead them into the eternal promised land, the new heaven and the new earth. Many years later, a man named David shows up on the scene. He is anointed as a king over God's people. God makes a promise to him that there will be one of your sons who will sit on the throne of righteousness forever. He will accomplish righteousness for the people if he keeps my law. You see, through this promise that God made with David, it became very clear that as the king goes, the people go. The king represents the people. Helps us understand all of the history books, right? First and second kings, first and second chronicles. We read about all these kings, hardly any of them good. And we read about the wreckage that happens in Israel and Judah as a result. As goes the king, so goes the people. Then the prophets come and begin to give commentary on what's happening. The prophet Isaiah writes of a day that the root of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, there's a day coming when the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah writes of the servant of the Lord who would come who would suffer for the sake of his people and who would represent them, who through his knowledge would make his people righteous. The prophet Jeremiah is writing in a time when Judah is exiled in Babylon. The enemies of God's people have conquered them. They've taken them captive. And Jeremiah is writing mainly of horrible things going on. Exile has occurred because of the sin of the people and the wickedness of the kings of Judah. And Jeremiah writes these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We read that and it's incredible. And we're like, who is he? When's he coming? The very end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi writes, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then 400 years of silence until an angel appears to a virgin and says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He's here. He's here now. When Jesus was eight days old, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And 30 years later, John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world which leads the Apostle Paul to write in his letter to the Colossians of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. According Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Praise be to God. God has made all of that known to us. That whole plan that has been the plan forever and ever, that plan that is the reason that the world exists has been made known to us as if that's not staggering. Perhaps what's even more staggering is that all of that, we are a part of it. We. We are a part of that. Not that it's about us, it's not at all. It's about God and the praise of his glorious grace. It's about Jesus and his praise and fame and renown for what he has done. And we are a part of it. So in thinking about what Paul is doing here in this early part of his letter What is he doing? He's extolling the plan of God, the grace of God, and the sufficiency of Christ to save his people. The Ephesian Christians to whom Paul is writing were a part of this glorious plan that we've just been thinking about. And so are we. God's grace has been lavished upon us and Christ has saved us. And so what's the response? How would we respond to news such as this? There are a number of things that we could say. Let me offer a few. First, we marvel at God's plan we, we marvel and worship him for his plan of redemption. We fall on our knees, as it were, and thank him. Who am I that you are even mindful of me, let alone that I would be included in something this incredible? We see in God's plan and in the work of Christ we see our constant need of grace. We see that we are debtors to grace. And we respond in faith by casting ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ our savior. In all of this brothers and sisters, this really high soaring doctrine that we've been thinking about today We trust it, we believe it, we confess it, yes. And that doctrine informs very much how we live together. This plan of God, our neediness, the sufficiency of Christ, the wonder and marvel of God's grace to sinners like us, informs how we love one another. It informs how we submit to one another. We're going to see that in this letter to the Ephesians, that we are called in the church to love one another and mutually submit to each other. All of this doctrine, this wonderful plan, the grace of God and our need informs how we pursue unity and peace in the church. It informs how we forgive each other and seek reconciliation. You know, I think it's that the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and the call to love one another, the eagerness to forgive, eagerness to seek reconciliation, those things are marks of Christians. A lot of times in in the church, we'll talk about like the marks of a faithful Christian. What are they? These should be biblically at the top. Love for the brothers and sisters. A willingness to submit to brothers and sisters. Pursuit of unity and peace in the church. An eagerness to forgive when we've been wrong. An eagerness to reconcile when things are not right. All of this wonderful doctrine from Ephesians 1 that we've been unpacking informs how we watch over each other. How we go about correcting and restoring one another. It's very much a Galatians 6.1 kind of thing. If anyone among you is caught in sin, let those of you who are spiritual restore him with a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself lest you too fall. Fall. This doctrine we've been considering informs how we seek to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. It informs how we bear with one another in patience. A question for maybe your reflection this afternoon or sometime this week as it pertains to God's church in general, but maybe in a specific way, CBC, the church that that we are members of, that we are attending this morning. Have you ever noticed how a collective sense of our need for Jesus knits our hearts together in love and unity? Have you ever noticed that? How a collective sense of our need for Christ knits us together in love and unity? We praise God for his plan of redemption and for his wisdom and for his grace to sinners such as us. We thank him for Jesus and we thank him for the church. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in need just as we were before the sermon started. We pray that you would take these words, the water of this preacher's efforts and turn them into wine for these dear people. We pray, Father, for your spirit's continual work in us. Sustain our faith and strengthen it, confirm it, we pray. Strengthen us in our inner man that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints the length and depth, the height and the breadth of the love of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us as a body and as individuals, that we might love one another, that we might pursue unity and peace, that we might forgive one another and be eager to do that, that we would bear with one another, that we would gently correct and restore one another. We thank you for the ways that you have worked these things into our congregation, and we pray that you would continue to do it all the more. We are debtors to your grace. And we pray for your continued grace upon us now as we come to your table. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.